0: Welcome to another episode of Council for the State. I'm Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. Council for the State is a podcast produced by my office. Our goal with each episode is to shed a little more light on the office, Idaho law, and other aspects of state government. By doing so, we hope to increase transparency and further your understanding. Thank you for listening, and remember all of our past episodes are available at ag.idaho.com. Dot gov. Here's counsel for the state host, Scott Graff. Welcome to Council for the State. Idaho is part of three lawsuits against the Biden administration over vaccine mandates. The three suits filed with other states focus on the authority a president has or does not have to issue such mandates. The suits focus on the mandate for federal contractors, companies that employ more than 100 workers, and healthcare providers. The first was filed several weeks ago. The most recent was filed this week. This episode of the podcast will focus on the mandates, the litigation, the process that is playing out and will play out as the courts determine the outcomes of each case. Brian Kane, the office's chief deputy and co-host of Counsel for the State, is here for our discussion. Brian, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Scott. Always happy to be here. So let's
0: first just kind of zoom out here and start by discussing the legal arguments against the mandates. Each suit is somewhat different, but when you you know take a look at them from the thirty thousand foot level, the legal questions at hand are are similar in nature. What are the states' concerns with the legal authorities here in the uh, the vaccine mandates?
1: So I think that the the best way to think about it is uh, the states' concerns are essentially the core concerns of federalism, meaning our government is a government of dual sovereigns, meaning the federal government is a sovereign and then each state is its own sovereign, right? And that's why each, as you move from state to state, each state has a different set of laws. Um, within the current context, uh, the question of vaccines in particular That's always been a question that has been addressed by the states, meaning as you move from state to state, they may have different requirements for like what vaccines you need to enroll your child in school or or something like that. Um, And under that, uh, what it is, is that's referred to as a state's police power. And the police powers are one of those uh, powers that are reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And so the question mark for all of us is Does the federal government have the ability to uh, essentially invade? the state's reserved police powers um, in the manner that they have. And I think it's really important to highlight for folks um, what we're dealing with here is it's the executive branch through uh, both the president issuing executive orders as well as executive branch agencies such as the Department of Labor uh, or the Center for Medical Services, the Federal Department of Health and Welfare uh, issuing regulations. As opposed to Congress acting, meaning if Congress had acted and passed a law, that may very well create a different, um, a, a different level of legal analysis. It may still be something that Congress doesn't have the authority to do, but it's a different legal analysis at that point. Congress hasn't acted here,
0: so I won't ask you to be overly elaborate. But obviously, the administration feels like there's validity to taking the steps that it's taking there justification for doing so is what?
1: Um, So I think that so far their justification for doing so is, you know, we're in this pandemic. It's an emergency. Uh, We believe in the effectiveness of vaccinations and therefore the way for us to get through or out of the pandemic is by ensuring everyone gets vaccinated or as many people as possible uh, are vaccinated and we're going to take these steps to do it.
0: So the administration back in uh, first or second week of September, I believe it was, announced, hey, we're going to be doing this. And then everyone just sort of had to wait. What was that period like? What were we waiting on before the states that that were going to take umbrage with this could actually, you know, trigger some action?
1: So, uh, if if you don't mind I want to walk back and kind of let let folks know the three things that happened and actually there's a fourth thing that occurred um the president uh during that announcement that you're referring to uh issued issued two executive orders uh executive order one was that all federal employees will be required to be vaccinated um and I'll tell you that if there's if there's one thing the president probably has authority over, it's federal employees. Um, and so he issued an executive order addressing that. Uh, the second one was about federal contractors. So if you hold a federal contract, um, the president issued an executive order that required language to be inserted into each of those contracts, which included a vaccination uh, requirement. Um the states receive federal dollars based on those contracts, and so one of the question marks for us is whether the states have, uh, whether the way that the federal government is imposing those requirements is coercive on the states, meaning the states must comply, otherwise they will lose a significant amount of federal funding for example.
0: And it can't be coercive.
1: Well, that's exactly it, right? They can't make it so that it's so expensive for the states to refuse to comply that the states really don't have any choice, right? They're coerced into compliance by the amount of federal money. A great example of that is if you think of like a university system, right? A university uh, is dependent on the federal government perhaps to offer certain programs. Well, if they don't comply with that, they would have to essentially remove entire programs from their offering. And the question mark, the legal question mark there is, well, does that rise to a level that it would be considered coercive? So that was the second one. Um, and and part of the delay was we had to do the analysis, right? We have to evaluate the validity of the the executive order from the president, we have to look at the existing uh, regime that we're operating within, like what are the dollar numbers of these contracts, how much is at issue, um, all of those different things to determine if we have a cause of action. Um, and in that, in that instance, we realized that we do have a cause of action, and we did join a suit with other states uh, to challenge that contractor mandate. The third one, the president uh, directed the Department of Labor through OSHA. Um, to issue a what's called an emergency temporary standard or an ETS. Uh, And what that is, is that's an immediate rule that says this is in order to address a grave danger presented to these folks in these jobs, um, we're going to make the following requirement. In this instance, it was a vaccine mandate uh, for all employers with 100 or more employees, Um, That was one of those where, you know, we couldn't do anything until the Department of Labor issued the standard. Because if there's no standard, there's nothing to challenge at that point.
0: And if I remember correctly, that's hundreds and hundreds of pages of law think it came out.
1: I think it came in at 490 pages. Wow. So that
0: took some time, too, for the the administration to establish. And then ultimately it was released, and then we got to see it and then could litigate after that. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah and, those, and and again right that's the third third component and we did join a suit um challenging that and that's in the sixth circuit um and then the the final component and I said that there's a fourth component and it's because uh the center for medical services also had issued issued uh, regulation requiring vaccinations for healthcare workers um and you know one of one of the things that w- again When you get into the rulemaking authority of the federal government, the federal government has to have authorization to promulgate whatever rules are there. Which means you look at the statute that maybe creates the entity, or it's a statute that gives direction with with regard to a certain type of program. Um, And in this in this instance, right, you look at the statute under which the agency promulgates the rule. And we looked at that and said, we're not sure you have the authority that you're claiming to have to promulgate this under the statute you're claiming to promulgate it under.
0: Okay. We filed these along with other states. Mm -hmm. Uh, Explain the process and sort of the theory, I guess. Let's not talk necessarily yet about the process, but the theory of... Idaho not going it alone teaming up with in one of these uh, Georgia I believe was was sort of the the lead state and another of the the suits Louisiana was explain the idea for doing it that way as opposed to you sitting down and writing a complaint in your office and taking them to court in Idaho
1: sure Um, so I think the best way to explain this is many hands make light work um, these cases involve a lot of analysis. Uh, they can be somewhat complex. Uh, and we also have states that all have aligned interests on these, um, meaning the sovereign interests of the states are, are somewhat in conjunction with one another. And so it makes sense for us to pool our resources uh, and join onto these suits. Idaho, in particular, is a small attorney, attorney general's office. Um, so we don't have we don't have a large staff. We don't have a lot of dollars uh, as far as that goes. This is an extremely cost effective and efficient way uh, for the state of Idaho to defend its legal interests. And so that's why uh, oftentimes you'll see a sign on with other states, because if we were to take it all on ourselves, um it would be a very heavy lift, and we would probably need to be uh, looking for more people and dollars in order to do it. Like it's a resource question for us,
0: Brian. One thing I wanted to ask was I, I noticed that, and this is you know the layperson, the non-attorney uh, asking the question here, but uh, the most recent piece of litigation regarding the health care worker mandate that was filed in the western district of Louisiana. Louisiana was the lead state on that one. Another one, uh, and I believe that was the private employer mandate, we filed with Georgia and that got into a court in in Georgia. Can of explain to those of us who are not attorneys why some of these are getting filed at one level of court and others are getting filed in other courts?
1: Sure thing. Um, and I think that, you know, so the, of the three suits, um, we've got one filed in the, in the Southern District of Georgia, one filed in the uh, Western or Eastern District of Louisiana, and then another filed at the Circuit Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Um, and the reason why those are different is it's because it's based on the legal challenge that you're bringing. And so within the Sixth Circuit, it's because what we're doing is we're challenging an emergency temporary standard of the, of the Federal Department of Labor, and so when you challenge a standard in that fashion, it starts at the circuit court level. And that's a really interesting process because uh, other, other states, uh, and actually anyone who challenges the regulation can challenge it, um, and in that context, uh, 34 different challenges to that OSHA standard were brought in 12 circuits. Um, At that point, what happens is uh, there's a court for multi-district litigation because it's filed all over the nation, uh, and they have a lottery to consolidate all of those cases into a single case. Uh, This week, that lottery occurred, um, and the the cases are now all consolidated in the Sixth Circuit, which, as you know, is the circuit that we originally picked to to, uh, file in. And so uh, just kind of an, an interesting happenstance.
0: So, uh, and I recognize this is a fluid situation. I didn't bring a phone in to where we're recording, who knows, news could be breaking as we speak, but as we're taping with what we know today, and this is the the morning of November the 18th, by the way, Thursday, where do each of these lawsuits, these three stand?
1: So, um, I'm just gonna take them in order. So we'll start with the federal uh, contractor suit. Um, That suit is progressing. With each of these suits, uh, the states have filed a motion for preliminary injunction and for a stay, a temporary restraining order. Um, But those also need to be briefed. The judges take them and they make decisions. Um, And so we're moving through that process. Uh, I I can tell you that uh, as we look at it, uh, we recognize that there are some deadlines that are built into these laws. And so one of the things that we're constantly evaluating is how can we expedite uh, these actions under the rules, um, still recognizing that even, even as the states or, or groups challenging um, may want to expedite decisions, the ultimate authority still rests with the judge. Um, in the uh, Sixth Circuit case, um, the Fifth Circuit, in a simultaneously filed action, the Fifth Circuit issued a stay, staying the OSHA standard. And so that uh, that standard is not stayed or is stayed at this point. And uh, on top of it, OSHA actually recognized that and has somewhat backed off from implementing at this point in conjunction with that stay. Now all of those cases are consolidated in the Sixth Circuit. Um, and again, right, we're moving uh, to... To get a decision as quickly as we can, there recognizing right that we've got 34 uh, challenges all consolidated into a single one in that circuit, and so it's a little um, that there's a lot of moving parts within these, and then the final one, the 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 CMS um, vaccine uh, mandate. Again, we've filed, uh, we've made a motion for a preliminary uh, injunction in, in, in an attempt to get a stay. Um, there's an expedited briefing schedule, um, and we're working through that process. And So what we're, what we're seeing at this point is um, a lot of briefing, uh, which is pretty standard, and then it's all done in a very tight timeline uh, in order to see if we can get a decision.
0: The OSHA decision yesterday where they're they're saying essentially because of the Fifth Circuit decision to stay, we're pushing pause. We're not going to move forward with it. That, I think, is fairly clear for these other two. What is the status of the mandate as the litigation
1: occurs? So it depends on each mandate um, because until a stay is issued, it's considered in effect, Meaning but part of it is that there are deadlines that go go along with them. And so if you're not at the deadline, there may not be as big of an issue legally as opposed to the deadline is here and we have to comply. Right. Because if a court hasn't acted on it, it's considered valid until the court says it isn't. one of the things that's occurred with regard to the federal contractor mandate is they've actually, the federal government has pushed the deadline back a little bit. And so that's one of the things that, that occurs throughout this process. And and sometimes based on the, the, the litigation, uh, the government may decide, you know what, we're going to delay implementation. A court may enter into it and say, hey, we're going to stay this um, so that we don't move forward. Um, but it all—it's all somewhat dependent, and as you recognize, right, it's a little bit fluid. Meaning, we could find something new out this afternoon that changes everything. Mm-hmm.
0: So we have heard from a number of constituents, primarily from from healthcare workers who don't want to get the vaccine for whatever reason, uh, and I think that's moot actually as part of this conversation. But but are saying, okay, you filed, we appreciate that, but now what do we do? In the meantime, what, what is your advice for us? What's the, the response there?
1: So, my advice there is for them is you know, folks need to talk to their employers or, or whoever and figure out what their um, recommendations are. Um, remember, uh, the federal government has the ability to um, the, the federal government, we're challenging the federal government's ability uh, with regard to this, but there's still private employment contracts that are at play here, um, and the, the agreement that you have with your private employer may somewhat answer that question. Um, and I, I think that it's important to understand that we're arguing against federal overreach. There's still an employer-employee employer, employment, employer employee Uh, relationship that is underneath all of this, and employers oftentimes have some latitude with what they require of their employees.
0: These are cases that, you know, the outcomes are of interest in every single state across the country. That's not necessarily what qualifies a case ending up in the U.S. Supreme Court, but based on what you know about where these have been filed, the legal arguments being made, what's at stake. Do you anticipate that ultimately each of these will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court?
1: So I don't know if the Supreme Court will necessarily decide each of these. I think that each of these will most definitely be appealed to the Supreme Court. Um, But I think it's important for folks to remember the Supreme Court is a court of discretionary appeals, meaning you make an appeal to the Supreme Court they discuss whether or not they want to take it as an appeal, and they don't have to. There's nothing requiring them uh, to take an appeal. Uh, And so that's one of the things that I always think is important to remind folks of. Will this get appealed to the Supreme Court? Uh, Almost certainly. Will the Supreme Court agree to take it? I I mean, I think they would, but I'm not 100% sold on that uh, at this point.
0: And what does that evaluation process look like on the part of the Supreme Court?
1: Uh... (laughs) I think that's one of the great secrets of the uh, United States Supreme Court, right? Nobody, the only people in that conference are the Supreme Court justices. Uh, and I think that, and, and they keep a very tight lid on, on the discussions within those, right? They just issue an order list that says we're taking this case or we're not taking this case. And every now and then you'll see a little bit of a explainer come out, but it's, it's not very often.
0: So a hypothetical, and I recognize after working with you for five years that attorneys hate hypotheticals,
1: <laughs> but let's say that
0: we get to that point and the Supreme Court, there's an appeal made and the Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to take it. Is it possible that they are looking at the last decision made and, and the merits of that decision and saying, yeah, we're, we're good with this. We don't think we would change anything. Therefore, we're going to let this court decision stand. We'll move on to something
1: else. That could be part of the evaluation. Okay. Right. One of the, I do know that one of the things the court has a tendency to look at is if there is a split within circuit decisions and it's a uh, case of like national import, meaning we need a consistent predictable law across the nation. And we've got maybe the ninth circuit saying, yes, this is okay. And then the fifth circuit saying, no, this is not okay. uh, The court, We'll take that case to resolve that split and say, here is the single legal principle that we think should be established.
0: So final question, Brian, uh, General Wasden has said that these cases aren't necessarily just about vaccines. In fact, that they're not about vaccines, good vaccines, bad rather, they're about the authority of the federal government to issue a vaccine mandate and the authorities, as you talked about with the 10th Amendment, reserve to the states. Can you kind of elaborate on that line of thinking?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's important to understand that we can't really litigate the good idea bad idea concept. Meaning, this is a good idea therefore regardless of the means, it's okay. Right? Even even if we view it as a good idea in a good public policy position, if it exceeds the authority of the entity implementing it, under our Constitution, we have to ensure that we exercise that check on power, right? And, under, and it's because if we don't exercise that check on power, then once it's been exercised, it's that much harder to check it in the future. Meaning, and I guess the simplest thing is, you know, once the genie is out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in again. And I think that that's a great, uh, if you think about, governmental power and authority you know government power and authority once exercised is very difficult to then have the government retract or rescind uh, that exercise of authority Uh, there's a corollary to it right that uh, government once created never disappears and i think that you can kind of think through historical examples of those sorts of things Um, and we don't we as a society don't do a great job of evaluating the government that we've created to determine if it's still functioning the way that it should and whether or not we even need it in in essence um and this is another example of that right the government exercises this this power we agree with that exercise and then the next time they exercise it in a way that we're we're like hey I'm not so sure about that well how do we then make that argument after we've already agreed to the exercise or extension of that authority?
0: Do you have a guess as to the timeline when all of the dust will settle on this and decisions will have been made and this matter will be totally settled one way or another?
1: Uh, I think it's going to be more than two weeks. So um, months as
0: opposed to weeks.
1: I think it's going to be months, um, but i it, it's really hard to tell. And in part, it's because there's been an effort to expedite. Um, I know that folks want to move this along very quickly. We've got tight deadlines. Um, But then there's also the Supreme Court element. And the Supreme Court, you know, one of the things that we've learned through the pandemic is the Supreme Court can move as quickly or as slowly as the Supreme Court wants to or feels it needs to. And this is one of those question marks that, that I don't know we've got an answer to yet.
0: And we'll let that be our final thought on the topic. Brian Kane, Chief Deputy in the Office of the Attorney General and co-host of Counsel for the State. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Counsel for the State. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful in shedding at least a little bit more light on a very complex legal topic. Previous episodes of the podcast are available in three ways. Each is archived online at the Attorney General's website. That is ag.idaho.gov. Council for the State is also available through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time.